0: And we'll say our prayer to the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. I do commend you, in a way, with about the silence. I must say, the house is very silent. And in the grounds here, I remember, there always seems to be a certain amount of talking due to the, ser- the staff who serve us at meals, who are very saintly and admirable at their jobs, and they have to put in hours and hours and hours while we're supposed to be praying. I don't know what they do, uh, but uh, you feel they ought to be atheists by now because they have such a long time waiting between meals. And therefore, I think you hear laughter in the background and it's only because uh, such wonderful people are having a time off. I think we ought to try not to talk in the passages and but I stress to you silence because I do think it affects more people than you know. How many of us, if we were disturbed at night, or if we want to read and somebody comes and yaks next to us, would in most cases not go back to the same place again? And therefore in a way this house is so beautiful and so well run and the staff are so good uh, that I'm sure, that, and I feel you have done that. I was. Astonished when you all stood outside the dining room, which wasn't apparently opened, uh, you couldn't have been more quiet if you'd been a group of angels. The only people I've seen more quiet in that case was in Louisiana when a great snake was found on the staircase while we were saying the rosary. (laughs) People at the the Cajuns, etc., went on saying the rosary without a pause while three captains dispatched the horrid animal with sticks. I never saw so funny, not a single person stopped saying, Hail Mary, Holy Mary, Hail Mary, Holy Mary. (laughs) But they're different down south. Well now, uh, uh, again I'm worried, it's partly my own fault in the retreat, uh, because as I'm being recorded, and I did choose a completely new subject, uh, therefore that's why I've had to spend so long uh, preparing it. I've spent nearly a month getting the material together. Then uh, when I get here, I have to see which things to put in so as not to take more than half an hour for the tapes, and if the people in the years to come are going to listen to the saints, I want to be sure they listen to the right ones, (laughs) and also that they have a a fair mixture. So therefore, in a way, for a lot of you coming here, it may seem that, that I may have chosen perhaps the wrong subject. I don't think so. But it is a change from thinking of sin and pouting and how to go to confession and all the things we normally worry about to suddenly think about holiness. Cardinal Newman, again, I keep on quoting him, he has a marvelous statement. He says, talks about the mirror in the bathroom. I'd say bathroom if I was at home and they'd know what I was talking about. Bathroom sounds to me awful, but still. He says the mirror in the bathroom if it's covered with lint or dust, it reflects nothing. And he says, Our Lord made us, so let your light shine before men that they will see your father, the glory of your Father who is in heaven. We are meant to be reflecting God. And if we're covered with fluff, we reflect nothing. The mirror's not broken, we're not in mortal sin, we have not done anything very bad, and yet... People seeing us may wonder what's the difference. Pagans don't believe in anything, we do. And if we have the same number of martinis and tell the same blue jokes and uh, go to the same bingo and use the same language and cheat at golf, then why the heck be a Christian? It's much easier to be an atheist straight out. (laughs) So we've got something they haven't and yet we may look just like they do if we're covered with fluff. So holiness is a thing worth aiming at. And that is a frame of mind. Then to run back as Ignatius always did very quickly, this morning we thought first of all of Naaman, how wise he was not to be angry when he was asked to do a small thing instead of a big thing. Supposing a father or mother or children going back from this retreat suddenly realized that if I do little things, I can be as holy as if I try for big things, that would change our lives. We thought then also about St. Athanasius and the terrible troubles about the, our Lord, the Incarnation. See, we don't realize, probably in ourselves, are we Christians? Or have we abandoned our Lord and made him into a kind of scoutmaster? How many of us ever think about the miracles? How many priests ever preach about the miracles? They don't, why not? They wouldn't go down. Where Cambodia or the year of the decrepit or whatever they're called, or the geriatric movement, goes down. Freemasons and all the other people love, they, they love all these chaps in wheelchairs being pushed into toilets. That sort of real good works. But the atheists can push a wheelchair as good as anyone else. You don't need to be a believer in order to only think of that. So therefore, in a strange way, priests don't talk about miracles. We all tend to hedge away from confession. We call it reconciliation. That sounds better. It's a ridiculous word. Reconcilia- reconciliation means that both sides give way a little. So that like, It's what Kissinger's always trying to do in the Middle East. If your child comes up to you and says, Daddy, let's be reconciled, I'd say, certainly not, kneel down and say you're sorry first. (laughs) But we've managed to dodge all these things. Reconciliation sounds splendid, and we all come out very well. Newman's marvellous on that. He says, you know, and Dr. Menninger agreed with him, if you use abstract nouns, you remove all guilt. If you say, who takes away the sins of the world, then you know I've, I've added a few myself. If you say, take away the sin of the world, then you feel whats oh, all these other buggers have done that, and... <laughs> 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 it's, ve- no, it's very interesting in the, uh, St. John said sins, and now the Gloria says sin. It's getting very Episcopalian. <laughs> no, it's oft- interesting to see how we've got to defend our faith. So therefore, am I really entirely, or am I a Christian? Cardinal Newman, for many, many, many years, he was kept out of the Church by devotion to Our Lady. He regarded it as idolatry, like so many Protestants. Then as he got nearer and nearer to the Church, he became to love her more, and when he became a Catholic, and when he wrote his famous book, The Development of Doctrine, in the room next to where I live, when he came to that, he suddenly pointed out, Protestants who don't like Our Lady it's because they don't believe her son was God. That's what he did. You can say marvellous things of Jesus. You can say that he was a, a saintly man, chosen by God. You can say that he's the king of the world. You can say that through him all things were made. You can love Christmas. You can go right up to the very top. If there's an inch of difference between God the Father and God the Son, then Our Lady is not the mother of God. She's the mother of the (laughs) Vice-President. And therefore, how many Protestants I know, sincere people who love Jesus, their trouble's not with Our Lady, it's with the question of what St. Athanasius died for, or thought about. So you and I want to think very much about our relationship to the Incarnation. Then I was speaking just now about St. Joseph, and what can I learn from that, you and I, uh, myself? I can learn from that that my good name may be the only thing asked of me. That the way I behave in the area, the fact people trust me, the fact that people would say she'd never do that, or you can trust her, she wouldn't cheat, or be mean, or whatever it is. If you're known as that, you're doing as much as Saint Joseph did, who was the greatest saint. And now we come I can't do the thing at any length because I'm tired and you are. There's another great saint, the equal of St. Joseph. Indeed, all the theologians agree that St. John the Baptist and St. Joseph are the two greatest saints, both not Catholic. That's the encouraging part. <laughs> for. They were, they're the last two huge men of the old law. They just died before the sacraments. But they are the greatest, and our Lord himself said that No man born a woman is greater than John the Baptist. Again, I quote Newman, you've heard him till you'll nearly go mad. Newman preached the most marvelous sermon, his greatest sermon, twice. He preached it uh, as a Protestant in Oxford, and he rewrote it and preached it as a Catholic in Dublin, in the little church in Dublin that he built. And he says, the Holy Baptist was sent before our Lord to prepare his way. That is, to be his instrument in rousing, warning, humbling, and inflaming the hearts of men, so that when he came they might believe in him. He himself, that's Christ, is the author and finisher of that faith, of which he is also the object. But ordinarily he does not implant it in us suddenly, but first he creates certain dispositions, and these he carries on to faith as their rewards. When then he was about to appear on earth among his chosen people and to claim for himself their faith, he made use of St. John the Baptist, first to create in them the necessary dispositions, and therefore it is that at this season, when we are about to celebrate Christ's birth, we ought to commemorate again and again the great saints who was his forerunner. As in today's Gospel, lest we should forget that without due preparation of heart, we cannot hope to obtain and keep the all-important gift of faith. The whole sermon is marvelous, but I won't go on with it. John the Baptist's one job, and it's our job too, that God rarely gives the faith unless to people who are disposed. I said to you today that when our Lord, when God was going to send his only son on earth, he didn't want to appear a dictator. He wanted any man, any woman, frightened or anything, to be drawn to him. And therefore, as he couldn't thunder and wouldn't want to work signs, he sent John the Baptist to the desert, offering hope. And the very fact that all those poor peoples soldiers and boys and girls and the first apostles all rushed out into the desert, they that was the dispositions by which they get faith. It's one of the most interesting things I think, and it's a part of the Council of Trent, that God, God rarely if ever gives the faith except to people who want it. Now they may be pagan, men like Marcus Aurelius, they could be John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, it could be markings, dead hammer scold. These people didn't want to be Catholic, but they all yearned for something. They knew this life was going to leave them. They were frightened of death, they knew they had bad consciences, they'd committed sin, they wanted hope and all that a great craving. And this is what we see everywhere today: pagans, Hindus, fear among the Egyptians, among the Jews, among Catholics. Any one of us could be put into a state of panic in a second if we suddenly found the doctor saying terminal. Well, we all live like that. Now our God knew that, and he came on earth, he wasn't going to frighten us, he was going to tell us without any fear that there is an answer. And this applies to not only Catholics, everyone. So John the Baptist stood there and told them there's joy, good news. And they all loved it, and he poured a bit of water on their heads. I never quite know what he was doing then, but it that cheered them on too. And then an extraordinary thing was, then his greatest moment came when Jesus appeared. Our Lord didn't come on the stage till John the Baptist had softened them up. And then there's that great moment, one of the most moving in the whole of the uh, gospel, I would have said. Next day, John was standing there with two of his disciples, And he looked at Jesus as he walked, and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where do you stay? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow him was Andrew. The whole church began when John the Baptist did his final splendid thing and allowed his two best disciples to follow Jesus. It's the most wonderful moment. He introduced the new law when he showed Andrew, and Andrew went and called Peter, and he showed John, and he called James, and then Nathaniel, All those people longing for hope, John the Baptist was put there just to do that. St. Francis de Sales, who's such a smashing saint in his own right, he was asked by somebody, who was the most mortified of all the saints? And he said, John the Baptist. Not Simon Stylites up his pillar or any of those, no. He said, St. John the Baptist was the most mortified. He who leapt in his mother's womb for joy... When Mary came at the visitation, he jumped for joy when our Lord in his mother's womb came to the house, must have longed to follow him on earth. But he wasn't asked to, so he stayed in his appointed place by himself. He went on baptizing till he was beheaded, and our Lord went away and founded the church without the greatest of all the saints. That's a mystery we don't know why, but certainly the greatest moment of John the Baptist was when he showed the first people who are disposed they were longing for something, he prepared the way. Faith is always a gift of God, ultimately God gives it you, supernaturally. But on the whole, knowing how he made man, he wants us to love him. Even if we don't know him wholly or fully or don't know the gospel or don't understand, if we see a glimmer of light and want it, then we are disposed and then you'll get the faith. Cardinal Newman makes the splendid point in the Gospel how we often say, I've got the faith, she hasn't. Our Lord never said that. Our Lord said, your faith is strong, and your faith is weak. You only, want, only believe if I do signs. You believe without that. God knew, when he became a man, he knew how we were made. If he wants us to love him, he's got to let us make the first move. Nowhere in the Gospel is anyone converted who didn't want to be. So having said that, and with time running out, I only want to mention three, or two, three wonderful saints in a very short passage that you could look up and follow. I think one of them by all manner of means is the great Saint Barnabas. Now he's in the Acts of the Apostles, and there's no problem. You could easily turn the pages over and read it. He was a perfect John the Baptist. He didn't try to convert anyone. The the strange thing about him was he simply introduced people. Barnabas's name, as we know, was son of encouragement. Just supposing like the man for all seasons, people round about you said, oh I like Joe, he's always encouraging. That's exactly it. They changed Barnabas's name. He's also the first chap in the whole of the church who gave Started c- Catholic charities. He sold a field in the first act, chapter of the Acts and gave it to the apostles. They ought to have a statue of Georgetown to commemorate the first chapel contributors to any Jesuit college. <laughs> no, Barnabas. He was called the son of encouragement, and the first thing he did uh, was uh, to St. Paul. And it's worth reading the thing. In, you find it at some. You find it in Acts 11:22. When Paul was converted, he, he persecuted the church. He was not a man to be trusted. When they brought, came to Jerusalem, uh, nobody wanted to talk to him. Even Peter and the others were uh, trying to say the rosary or something and get out of the way. And Barnabas took Paul round and said, here's, here's Paul. <laughs> and he solemnly introduced the greatest of all the apostles to the others. Otherwise, uh, God knows what have happened to Paul, Barnabas did it. And then he was wonderful, he and Paul went out. He was the boss, and Paul was second up while they were starting anew. But the moment they got to Antioch, they changed orders, and then Paul took command, and Barnabas stood down. You could say that Barnabas, he had a row with Paul later, but they made it up. But you could say that in a strange way, like John the Baptist, Barnabas had one job in the church, was to introduce Paul. Another wonderful saint I like to mention, because this is what he did always, was St. Philip Neri, who we never think about today, an extraordinary saint. Philip Neri was for ten years with the Dominicans. He was a boy at Florence. He was educated in St. Mark's monastery, that beautiful place where Fra Angelico's great picture of the Annunciation is on the dormitory wall, one of the most moving sights you, you haven't seen it where you see that most famous picture of Our Blessed Mother painted just in the dormitory, on a wall. He was ten years with the Dominicans and then he packed off and did ten years with the Benedictines at Monte Cassino. He didn't become a Benedictine but he lived in the caves there, went and sang office and banged his chest and was uh, duly liturgical. Then he went off to Rome and just thought he'd be a priest and decided not to be and then he went and lived in the catacombs for ten years and went round all day taking parties. That's all he did. He collected all the tourists in Rome and took them around the catacombs and he did that for 10 years. And then eventually someone, then he met St. Ignatius. It's rather funny, he met a whole, whole bang lot of my retreat all in one day. Saint Dominic he loved, but he didn't want to be a Dominican. Benedict he loved, but he didn't want to be a Benedictine. Ignatius he loved, and I think so, Cardinal Newman suggests, for one moment he thought of being a Jesuit. Why? Because he just read the first letter of St. Francis Xavier from India. And he thought, I'll go to India. But he went to confession to a Benedictine who said, no, Philip, your India is Rome. And so he stopped being a Jesuit. <laughs> Though Ignatius and, he, and uh, Philip Neri were like that. Charles Borromeo, Camillus de Lellis. Hundreds of saints knew him. So he lived in Rome. He never went further than the Basilicas of Rome for 50 years. He became a priest eventually, and then he found a club for old priests where there were no rules, so he joined it. (laughs) He was so glad to be totally free and yet in a family. And this strange little community turned into the Oratorians. And when poor Cardinal Newman... 46, just ordained a priest, very old, too old and that, he thought of being a Jesuit, etc. He suddenly thought Philip Neri is the one for me. He became an oratorian because Philip Neri had put built together the perfect religious order for chaps who just love God, are a bit eccentric, and simply want to dispose people to love God. Philip Neri went around Rome for 50 years he did nothing but call on all the shopkeepers, all the warehouses, and um, then he started a music society, For the, that's where the word oratorio comes from. Palestrina was one of his first disciples, and he just was, well he became the patron saint of Rome by election. He had no rules, he was only became superior when he was about 70 and just about to die. <laughs> then they made him boss for the last few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> And he's most extraordinary saint. And on the day he died, he heard confessions the whole morning. He heard confessions the whole afternoon. And then he went had supper. Then he came, heard confessions uh, for the priests and others who'd be saying Mass the next morning, which was Corpus Christi. Next morning he dies. And Father Faber, an the one of the worst poets in the world, I should think, wrote a marvellous hymn to St. Philip, dying on the feast of Corpus Christi, and, and the, the fathers still sing it on St. Philip's feast. I must say, they all laugh. It says, his face was grey, his eye was dim, the feast had proved too much for him. <laughs> so St. Philip Neri is another super saint. You could say all he did, everybody who met him, sinners, everybody, talked to them. He had only one aim in mind, and that was to dispose people. You and I can't convert anyone. No arguing, nothing, you never know, nothing you say will make a person come into the church. All I can do is that I can so dispose them to know that there's hope, that then suddenly, when our Lord gives them a chance, they'll snatch it, as did the crowd who went to see John in the desert. And I'm going to end with a last just time, the last famous letter which moved me, I've done it once before on a record. I think it's the most moving letter in the whole of Christian literature. It's the instruction which Father Saint John de Brébeuf wrote to the young Jesuits who are volunteering to come from Canada, from France to Canada. How to win the Indians. And this is what they all read and some of them were martyrs. I've never read a thing better describing what you and I ought to do, even among the Red Indians of Maryland, white or otherwise. Instructions for the fathers of our society who shall be sent to the Hurons. You must be, have sincere affection for the savages, the veteran counseled. To conciliate them, never make them wait in embarking. Have a tinder box to light their pipes and fires for them. Eat their sagamite, although it may be dirty, half-cooked, and very tasteless. Eat all they offer, and when they offer it. Do not carry water or sand into the canoe. Do not be troublesome. Do not ask too many questions. Do not criticize. Be, and appear to be, always cheerful. Make presents to them of pocket knives, fish hooks, colored glass beads, Do not stand on ceremony, wear a nightcap in the canoe rather than a broad-brimmed hat. Help carry the baggage at portages, if only it be a kettle. Finally, understand that the savages will retain the same opinion of you in their own country that they have formed on the way. And one who has passed for an irritable and troublesome person will have considerable difficulty afterwards in removing this opinion. You have to deal not only with those of your canoe, but also, if I may say it, with all the inhabitants of the country. You meet some day one and some other day others, and they do not fail to inquire from those who brought you what sort of man you are. It is almost incredible how they observe and remember even the slightest faults. When you meet savages on the way, as you cannot yet greet them with kind words, at least show them a cheerful face, and thus prove that you endure gaily the fatigues of the voyage. You will thus have put to good use the hardships of the way, and have already advanced considerably in gaining the affection of the savages. I won't read any more, there's another paragraph, but could you imagine a man from France a man whose family went back and fought in the Battle of Hastings and fought with William the Conqueror. This great man, when he went out to Canada, for the first four years, he couldn't speak a word. He lived in a wigwam to learn the language. He couldn't lip-read. He describes how they had no towels, how when you got, you ate eels and things, you then waited till a dog went by and cleaned your hands on the dog no deodorants in that world. (laughs) His eyes were all sore with the smoke from the things, they they were promiscuous, they really didn't, they heard nothing of control in sex, they couldn't understand him at all, and he says sometimes for 30 days he never said a word. And then you'll find in his book, gradually, when he learnt the language, he noticed that though they were barbarian and savage and killed and scalped people, they had consciences. And then he began to work on that. And by the time he was martyred, I think he had 17,000 converts in his parish. The superior of this house and myself have both been to Midland, and it's the most marvellous shrine. Lords, I don't think, compares with it. You see the river, miles away even today, you see the little fortifications, the Indian cemetery, you see where the pre- priests kept their canoes, and then you see his village, and when they dug up the grass the other day, excavating, you can still see the ashes where the Indians burnt him. Well, he was burnt to death there, but what you felt with this letter is what John the Baptist or our Lord would have said, if the Indians didn't get to love him, and he didn't inspire them to want more, then he would have failed. And so any good done to the Indians was done by great men from France, not only Jesuits, Franciscans and others, but that letter I felt to me, this is what John the Baptist would have said, or our Lord would have said to the 12, the 72, when you go out, all you do is soften people up. By your kindness, by your example, not arguing, etc., I've got, like John the Baptist, to dispose them. Once they've got any slightest wish, that or realise there's something more than sin that will be pleasurable once we make them see that there's happiness then they'll want it and then our Lord will always give it them. So our apostolate is very much like John the Baptist and like St. Philip Neri we can't go to India but we can do it in Maryland.